0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne will be speaking with Natalie Bebeau, the filmmaker behind The Whistleblower and the Walrus, a feature film about a walrus in Marineland in Niagara Falls, about the man who came to devote his life to getting her out of there. And really, it's about changing our relationship with animals and what it means to be an activist. You've been talking about this interview ever since you recorded it.
1: Well, that might be a slight exaggeration, but I loved this interview. I really did. It's so interesting. And it it's just an interesting study of people, of activism, of animals. And and it goes deep. And I loved it. What can I say? I, I think I, I do gush a bit in the interview, but it's all authentic, I promise.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So this week on the bonus segment, I heard more from Natalie. we will be sharing that with you. And, of course, if you're a flock member, you will get the link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can always join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate or you can join for $100 a year. And this is a good time to do that because it's being tripled. All donations between now and the
0: end of the year as part of our end of year matching campaign are being tripled. So please join us. Now is the best time of year to do so. As Marianne said, there are some great perks for becoming a Flock member. And if you go to ourhandhouse.org slash donate, you can join us
1: today. Also, to help us all get through the pandemic and have a little community, we're doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls at 4 p.m. Eastern. Sometimes we have guests. Sometimes we just have a chat. This This last week, we we just talked about what we did on Thanksgiving. So uh, that's pretty mellow <laughs> and we all kind of needed to download. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at org. So before we get to the interview, I know that you are Ms.
0: Twitter, and uh, I I frequently follow what's going on in your world and in your head by following what you're liking on Twitter. I had this funny little Twitter exchange the other day, or wasn't really an exchange, but I follow Bibi Neuwirth, the great Broadway actress on Twitter, and she had basically started this thread by uh, saying, I have a Picasso joke, but it's blue. And she had been responding to someone who wrote, I have a Fermat joke, but it's too long to fit into a tweet. And everyone started to reply. I wrote, I have a Warhol joke, but it's bananas. In case you... (laughs) 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 Thank you. (laughs) Oh my God, that was such a mean pity laugh. Um, But anyhow, so... That's basically what I do on Twitter.
1: <laughs> but what you do on Twitter is much more. I like I am so much not Ms. Twitter. I find that one of the most offensive things anybody wow. about me. It's just that my social media, ab- my ability to stay up to date on social media has disappeared. I'm really as as I've said a million times, I'm really trying to get it back. I've committed to that so many times on this podcast that I'm embarrassed to do it again. But Twitter is the one thing that I follow at all. And mostly I just waste time on it. It's not like I have a good grasp on it. Or I retweet people, you know, I'm I'm not a good tweeter. Like nothing about that makes sense to me. Getting back to the to the topic of this particular podcast, animals. So all right. So you know about the the obviously you all know about the senatorial elections that are now go ongoing in Georgia. Boy, people from overseas must just get confused by us. I don't know. Even I find it confusing that there are two senatorial elections going on in, in Georgia, but there are. They're very 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 important. If you're in Georgia, don't you dare not vote. And uh, it's it's uh, John Ossoff and he is running against uh, David Perdue. John Ossoff is a Democrat, David Perdue is a Republican. He's a big businessman. And so John Ossoff was celebrating small business Saturday as he put uh, on Twitter, by doing a stop at Slutty Vegan, a vegan burger joint. And apparently somebody called out as he walked in, we got John John running for Senate in the building, and there were all sorts of cheers. Uh, very cute, nice to rep- represent for uh, small businesses. And Slutty Vegan, of course, is one of our favorites, even though we don't ever get to go there. But, but you know, kind of a famous, famous place in the vegan world, wildly successful, woman-owned, black-owned. I just actually interviewed Pinky
0: Cole. It's in the next issue of Veg News. She's the founder of it. Little plug.
1: Very exciting. These people are really super dynamic. All right. I'm not telling you that because of that tweet. Obviously cute, but, you know. And nice that a politician is visiting a vegan burger joint. His opponent, David Perdue, responds, well, first of all, there's this picture of him. He's this very tall, admittedly kind of good-looking white guy, like as white as white can be. Um, and with his wife, who is blonde and has a kind of deer in the look She does. And they're sitting in front of a, a of a table. They're in like, she a, looks diner, like a cutout and they're like sitting in a cardboard in... cutout, actually. All right. If people can't see it, they're they're not going to know what you mean. But she does look a little. Well, I'm not going to talk about people's looks. That's what she looks like. Okay. Stop with the lookism. Sorry. And uh, they're sitting in, at at a diner in front of a table, and they're eating waffles. And there's like all these plates of bacon in front of them. Already charming. And he says, "Osoff can have the plant burger. We'll take the all star special." Oh my Pick god. Pick your side, Georgia. Oh. Like, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Veganism enters the race in the first place. Sean Osuff is not, as far as I know, a vegan. So and he wasn't really going to. So it, his post was just kind of tangentially vegan. It was really about small businesses. But, you know, I'm glad it was. But this is all about in spite of the fact that it's about small business Saturday, he doesn't bother to mention the name of this of this restaurant. Giving them any kind of promotion, wow. though that's just as well because I don't want people to go there. And he makes it side th- this. He makes this whole subject about sides between people who eat vegan burgers and people who eat bacon. And I, you know, it probably works. There is so much. You could write a book about this tweet. There is so much going on here. One of the things that I think is going on here is how much meat eating has just is just so embedded in this kind of performative masculinity. And of course, we've talked about this many times. There's this whole like kind of aura that for men to eat vegan makes them weak or something, which is pretty insane considering all of the major athletes who eat vegan. And I, and you know another thing that's going on here too, is I bet neither of these people who look very fit and she looks like she watch she's tiny and she looks like she watches. I, I bet they never eat bacon and it's all for the for the masses. and I just, I just I really went down this like wormhole of thinking of how much of this type of fake masculinity. I am not saying there's a not a real thing going on with masculinity and femininity. I don't think those two aspects of personality are necessarily strongly related to whether you're male or female, though, you know, they probably are in some, in some senses, either culturally or, or something else. What do I know? I'm not an expert in gender, but the, the way that animals have been caught up in this kind of fake masculinity, I mean, if masculinity has a reality, it's about caring and protecting, you know, protecting the family, strength, strength, used to protect the family the tribe the the whatever and it's just become like so fake about and animals have just gotten caught up in it when in in hunting and and not hunting for food like hunting for for fun uh torturing animals in all sorts of different ways just how many different ways have animals been caught up in human pathetic insanity
0: They're also caught up in that thing. It's like the other side of how much I hate when animals are used as a metaphor, you know? It's like we use animals as a metaphor, for example, in Octopus Teacher, which we talked about a few weeks back and in so many other ways animals who are there to tell the moral of the story for the human gain but not necessarily representing themselves as an an equal entity and it makes me feel like this is the opposite of that but it's this you know flip side of the same coin it is animals being used metaphorically to further this idea that this that animals are gendered in in terms of the way we exploit them, like Bacon Manly, you know, things like that. It's it's this mix of them being metaphoric and and being the absent referent, as Carol Adams says. It's it's really some fucked up shit. It, pardon my French.
1: This is all very Carol Adamsy, and I would love to he- write, Have her write an essay on this tweet, and I would love to read it, <laughs> because because there's just I, I'm sure she would discover a million other things going on here. It's just it's just deep. Uh, it's so we'll see what happens. Just implying that this younger guy, who's probably David Ossoff, look, uh, or I mean David Perdue looks like he's pretty big guy. It probably has to do with size, has to do with strength, has to do with weakness. And it has to do nothing with bacon, like, or dead pigs or whatever. They just get dragged into everything, dragged into all of our nonsense and our, our ridiculous performances of everybody's just performing. And she's, she, the, the wife who's like, you know, tiny and blonde. She's the, I have no idea what her personality is like. I, you know, I'm, not well disposed towards her, but, and I don't want to talk about looks, but she is kind of the perfect foil, you know, like the little feminine woman. And and he's got his arm around her, kind of clutching her. I don't know. Everything here is fucked up. Everything, but especially that the animals get dragged into it.
0: You know, if people are interested, we also got a bit into the gender stuff as it relates to animals on episode 524 with, Carrie Lou Hamilton, or C. Lou Hamilton, uh, who's a recent Flock member, I might add. And Carrie and I had talked a bit about her book, Veganism, Sex and Politics, Tales of Danger and Pleasure, and it got into some adjacent sort of topics. But yeah, this tweet is
1: egregious,
0: for sure.
1: Well, it's fascinating. Pick your side, Georgia.
0: Wow. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Wow, that says it all. And, uh, you know... The, the two sides of, th- of these two teams, the, the poor uh, animals or something like the football, just getting tossed around. I hate people. No, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to <laughs> say that. Forget I said that.
0: Well, I like people as well. I mean, we could focus on all that's messed up in the world or we can focus on all that's being done to change the messed upness. Uh, which brings me to our vegan businesses. Each week we like to shout out some businesses that we like to bring attention to. So follow them on Instagram if you're not If you're not near these locations in person, you might as well be digitally near them and support them. The first is Drop Squad Kitchen. You can learn more at dropsquadkitchen.com. It is a vegan Black-owned restaurant in Wilmington, Delaware. Delaware's only 100% plant-based restaurant. They create boutique-style, from-scratch plant-based foods using thoughtfully curated ingredients from the earth. And every one of their recipes reflects a multicultural influence or a story. What I love is that they say we make plant-based foods accessible to everyone. Our food is home-cooked with lots of thought, love, and care. They specialize in fresh and made-to-order vegan soul food. They think that their business holistically represents a state of mind. So if you are really being intentional about what you're consuming, then you will have a clearer state of mind. And I think that that's super cool. It is a family sustainable business model. And uh, I am already following them now on social media at Drop Squad Kitchen. So I hope you check that out. And next time you're in Delaware, stop
1: by as well. Our next business is, this is something of a very sad story. And I know a lot of people are grieving about it, but there is still uh, some hope at the end of the tunnel. No Bone Speech Club, This is an amazing woman-owned vegan business. Their story began with a humble food truck in Seattle, but at the heart of it all is their continued mission to reduce animal consumption. They are true blue vegans for the animals. They're committed to a plant-based lifestyle. Their goal is to spread the word that just because it's vegan doesn't mean it sucks. Uh, that's for sure some of their unique menu items include maize balls which are breaded mac and cheese balls with tempeh bacon and jalapeno i want them right now jackfruit flautas and more all everything is vegan and sadly this is the tragic part their portland location has closed, closed down due to covid and the Chicago location is temporarily closed. They can really use our support. If you're not local to Seattle, you can support them by following them on social media or get some merch on their online shop at nobonespeechclub.com and we're just hoping that that the Chicago location will be reopening and and maybe they can get back to Portland because I know this restaurant is beloved.
0: I've been there. Uh it is it is truly extraordinary. <laughs> like, everything about it is amazing, and it made me really sad to hear about this recent closure, but I'm hopeful. And that's the whole reason we started the Our Head Now Supports Vegan Businesses program so that people can support vegan businesses. So let's do our part.
1: Yeah. I mean, if that story doesn't show how much these places need our support, nothing does, because that restaurant was packed all the time, and and still they couldn't... they. You know, and I know they have a huge following and they still couldn't make it. Well,
0: let's support them. Uh, And now let's also get to our interview with Natalie Babo. Natalie is a director and producer of international award-winning productions for the CBC and others. The Walrus and the Whistleblower is her first feature film. She went... Back to the Rust Belt of Ontario, where she grew up, to make this very personal tale that plays out against the swell of a paradigm shift in our relationship with animals. Natalie will be joining Marianne right after this.
2: Hi, I'm Brittany Michelson, editor of the anthology Voices for Animal Liberation Inspirational Accounts by Animal Rights Activists, released in March of this year by Skyhorse Publishing. The book is a collection of stories and personal essays by animal rights activists, both very established and newer voices, and it includes a piece written by Jasmine Singer. The book is available to order on multiple sites, including the Skyhorse Publishing website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and others. Please consider ordering a copy for yourself or for somebody else as a gift this holiday season. Again, the book is Voices for Animal Liberation. I'm Brittany Michelson, and the publisher is Skyhorse.
1: Welcome to our hen house, Natalie. Thank you for having me. I am so excited about talking to you because I really love this movie. I mean, you know, when I have people on, I usually have them on because I like their movie, but I really loved your movie on a lot of different levels. And I just want to start out. When I read this after I saw the movie, I I thought it was so interesting that you actually grew up in or near Niagara Falls where this documentary takes place. Isn't that right? And Marineland, Marineland was presumably a place that was well known to you. It was. Um, my parents took me
2: there when I was a kid. You know, this was a place that, if you grew up in Niagara in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, this was a almost a rite of passage. I'd say, you know, you'd go with your family. Uh, you'd also go with uh, school groups. So, you know, as a big employer and a big tourist legacy in the region, everybody knew the park. Everyone knew who the owner was. Everyone knew what kind of power they had. And for a long time, that was considered positive
1: yeah I'm sure. I mean, as you point out, it's not an economically booming area, and it obviously was a, a an important part of 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 the scene there. I, and actually, I don't think this movie is specifically about Marineland, which is just one more oh pathetic <laughs> operation that abuses animals from my point of view. I was going to say two bit, but it really wasn't <clears throat> two bit. it was it was kind of prosperous. But, you know, there's a lot of those places. And and the movie is also about a walrus, a specific walrus, but not exactly just about a walrus. And I, I just felt this movie had so much depth. It's about love and the meaning of love. And when it was some people would say, where does love end and obsession begin and, mm-hmm. and what drives people to do what they do? And, of course, about this one particular guy, Phil Demers, Is am I pronouncing it the way he prefers yeah, you're pronouncing it really okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, And you
2: actually knew him when you were a child, right? I did. He was a friend of my brother's, and um, he was a little shit disturber. Him <laughs> 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 and my brother were, um, you know, they met when they were about five. I'm uh, a few years older. We were in different social groups. So we didn't really hang out, but he was around. You know, he came to my house pretty often, and they were quite close right up until the end of high school when they actually moved to Korea together. And Phil ended up coming back and my brother stayed, Uh, but they kept their friendship um, very close over the years. But I ended up leaving that small town when I was about 17 and living around the world uh, in Europe and traveling through Africa. And then eventually uh, came back to Canada and settled in Montreal. So when I started this film, I hadn't talked to Phil or seen him in 20 years.
1: So... It's a little unusual. As you said, you left, you had a a varied career around the world. You have made other films and seen a good deal of success. And yet you came back to what used to be your hometown and made a movie about this, as I said, two bit operation. And, And this guy you knew when you were when you were little, like, why did you decide to make this movie? You know, it's it's a question that,
2: as a filmmaker, you get all the time. And I think that it's, in my particular case, it's one of my favourite questions. Because this film, though, it is very much about um, the things you've discussed. Uh, transformation, risk, love, our relationship with animals, uh, obsession, hubris. I feel like I am a part of this film in a unique way. Because I'm, I'm absent. You know, there's no narration Um I really made sure that I stayed behind the camera so that I could really give space to the issues at hand. But the, the journey of getting to the place where I could make a film like this uh, felt very personal um, because I my history is in making documentaries that are journalistic but not particularly artistic or cinematic. You know, I worked at the public broadcaster, uh, CBC, which is your our equivalent of PBS, and did important stories on uh, topics and people that had nothing to do with me, you know, really outside of my personal experience. And I left the public broadcaster to make independent films and started to make a name for myself on the outside. And I was watching this story with Phil and Samushi develop over the years. Uh, He first became famous for his relationship with this walrus as as a poster child for captivity. You know, people knew him as this charming, handsome trainer who had this great relationship with a walrus. And then five years later, He flips in the public eye, he exposes, uh, you know, launches these allegations of animal abuse, and then his whole persona changes and he becomes an activist. And so as a storyteller, this was a no-brainer, but it took me years to actually approach him and then pitch it and get the film financed because I didn't know if I was ready creatively to go home In that way, to go to to reach inside of me and and tell a more intimate tale about people I knew when I was a kid, about a place I went to, about a very controversial topic in my hometown. You know, this idea of captivity is controversial around the world, but you can only imagine what it's like in a small town where this used to be one of the only places you could get a job if you weren't educated. Uh, When the factory jobs dried up, guys like Phil, this is pretty much one of the only games in town. You know, that in the casino and a call center or a coffee shop. So all of a sudden, you know, have this kind of Goliath-type character. And then you've got, you know, this, this David character, Phil, who sort of attacks the legacy. And so here I was as a professional filmmaker coming home and, you know, messing around in all of that and asking hard questions. So that courage that it took to, to do that, it took me quite a few years to build up. Uh, the other thing, of course, I'll say quickly, is that uh, lawsuits were flying around. You know, as soon as Phil came out uh, with his allegations, Marineland launched lawsuits against him and various other employees and the media. So that kind of landscape, as an independent filmmaker, you know, when you when you enter that landscape, you think long and hard about it before you do. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. And so all of that to say, it was the moment really was when I saw Phil testify at our senate to fight for a law to ban the captivity of whales and dolphins i there was a video that went around online and i thought what am i doing not making a film about this like this is this is the film that's been waiting for me so i decided to do it
1: i'm so glad you did but i can imagine how how difficult i mean documentarians i think they are the people who take a step back and 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 look at this from maybe not a completely neutral point of view, but a distance point of view. And you really didn't have a lot of distance here. That must've been hard. Now the other character, I mean, he doesn't, uh, he's obviously not present in the movie as much, but obviously a huge, huge part of this movie is this guy, John Holler. Mm-hmm. And I think Naomi Ro- Rose said in the movie that he was a certain, Naomi Rose being the, the scientist who studies cetaceans and other, and other sea animals she said he was a certain type. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that was so well said. Because it says a lot <laughs> without saying a lot. What do you think she meant by that?
2: Well, uh, I think she goes on to say narcissistic and megalomaniac. <laughs> something yeah. Along yeah. Those no, lines. She, yes, she
1: does. She, she does lay that in her wonderful, colorful way. And he of course was the owner of, of Marineland. I, I didn't, I didn't exactly that yeah
2: yeah that's right so he's the owner he emigrates from slovenia to canada in the 50s he decides that he wants to open this park because he'd been a circus trainer in europe and so he found he you know starts this operation in 1961 basically by welding a tank together and putting a seal in it and charging 25 cents to come see it Wow. And of course, like it's all the rage because if you're in the Rust Belt, when have you ever seen a seal? And so, so with that popularity, it starts to gain traction. He starts to get more animals and then uh, it really becomes a, an empire. Um, eventually he gets killer whales and his lifelong dream is to be Disney, but with animals except in the opinion of many people he never really succeeds you know it's kind of a pale imitation of of disney world and of course when you bring in the animals then that changes the whole perspective on it but he's definitely a notorious character in our in our region and and across uh, north america really
1: and just to to round out the group at the center of this movie tell us a bit about the walrus who was really the center of this of this very personal struggle between these two men and how she and other walruses ended up at Marine land. Mm -hmm. so the captivity industry is
2: interesting in the sense that it goes in waves around which animals are the favorites let's say in quotation marks and so you know there's an era where the killer whale industry is booming you know we're catching killer whales off the coast of the u.s and russia um off the coast of canada too and then as that starts to fall out of favor um the industry moves on to belugas and marine land and john holler um did that very well they tried to get a permit to capture belugas in uh canada which was denied uh quite early actually in the in the evolution let's say of this paradigm shift that we're seeing now in the 90s uh the canadian government said no you can't come catch wild belugas so they went to russia which is where most of these marine mammals are now caught and then uh Soon, uh, we, you know, he went from belugas to walruses. Um, and it was because there, there weren't many walruses in captivity, certainly in Canada. And so he wanted to do something different. And so Smooshy gets captured and uh, winds up coming to Marineland at about 18 months old in 2004. And Phil is, of course, one of the first people to meet her. And they have this extraordinary interaction, which results in him imprinting on her, You can imagine the trauma of a baby walrus who's been captured. The mother has likely been killed, although I can't say that for sure, but that's usually how these things work. Uh, Walrus mothers are uh, known for being one of the most protective species on the planet. And so she gets put in a box and she gets transferred over to Marineland, across the ocean, She wakes up, and now they're trying to get blood from her because doing health assessments is uh, a normal procedure when a new animal arrives. And there's this interaction that's described in the film, and she starts to see Phil as a mother figure, as this protective figure. And from that moment on, their relationship is really one of mother-child.
1: It's so interesting that he worked there for 10 years, and yet... It seems to have been his relationship with this particular animal that just, it flipped a switch or something that he started mm-hmm. to see it. See, I mean, he must have participated in things that he now thinks were wrong uh, because he was there and working there. And the fact that his relationship with Smoochie changed him so much, I think, is, is just a key to animal our relationships with animals as, as so often happens, it's a relationship with a particular animal that makes you see things more clearly. And what was there to see more clearly? What happens to walruses and other animals at Marine Land?
2: You know, first all, I want to pick up on what you pointed out there, which I think is crucial: is that the proximity that he had to Samushi and the love he saw in her eyes and that bond that they developed is ultimately, I mean, the greatest irony of this story is that it was captivity itself that allowed Phil to become anti-captivity. You know, the the whole reason he was able to become an anti-captivity activist was because he had a close relationship with a captive animal. And so that served a purpose for him and for his followers and for people who listen to him now and are are changing their point of view when he realized the emotional capacity of this animal and the the bond that they're capable of and the the intelligence and the humor and the personality um, was when he started to become you know deeply tortured about the fact that she was in a cage Um, and that she'd been taken from her mother. So, you know, animals in captivity as a whole have a whole varied, um, you know, life and and experiences. But at Marineland, they are held indoors behind cages most of the time. I mean, Phil says up to, you know, 23, 24 hours a day, depending on, you know, sometimes they're taken out to do um, health tests or training or performances, certainly in the summer, but they spend the majority of their life in what he calls the barn, which is in the back in a cage, which has a very shallow pool. And there isn't a lot of natural light, in fact, very little. And that's, you know, the water, of course, is, is chlorinated and treated. And uh, now that all the other walruses at Marineland have died, uh, Smooshi has been alone for some time.
1: Yeah, it, it really, I mean, I don't, I can't say I'm an expert on captive conditions for, for marine mammals. And I know it's bad everywhere. It seemed particularly bad here.
2: Yeah, it was a you know, it's it's a sort of place that didn't seem to have um, even the infrastructure that other places had you know when I I made this film uh, a lot of people don't know this but I was commissioned to do a a feature which is this film and also a television episode for a science show here in Canada for CBC uh, which is called The Nature of Things and for that episode which is going to air soon I filmed at the Vancouver Aquarium which is another facility where they had walruses in captivity and though I never got access to marine land I was never allowed in there I've seen pictures of course and I've seen videos um, which in the film from Phil. And I've heard descriptions from various employees. And when I went to the Vancouver Aquarium, it's another world. Like they're still captive, but they're outside the the area that they have to be in is is huge in comparison the, the level of care seems to be different as well so I think that and I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is an ideal um, habitat even the Vancouver Aquarium actually itself decided that they did not have uh, good enough conditions to keep these walruses and they ended up sending them back to where they were they were born at the Quebec Aquarium but all this to say that I think there there there's different ways of keeping animals captive and there are better and, and worse ways yeah
1: perhaps different circles of hell. And this was a particularly <laughs> low one. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been talking about the animal activism, which is a crucial part of this movie and animal activism has some particular challenges, I think, but this is also a movie about the, just the difficulties of being an activist in general, how it can take over your life, how it you know can limit other things that you're doing, how it, there are also huge positives to it, like in the kind of attention that he has managed to get and, uh, But some of the most striking scenes were the interactions between Phil and the legislators. Mm -hmm. They came, uh, like, did they know you were filming? Because (laughs) it just came across as smug and demeaning (laughs) and kind of bought and paid for. Like, how did you get this footage? It was like, there was no consciousness there of, of, of... of how bad they appeared? You know, I don't think they knew they would end
2: up in a feature documentary. You know, the, the Senate in Canada, those, those types of meetings are filmed by the Senate itself. Um, so those images actually come from their own archives. Ah, yeah. ah, and so they knew yeah. very well that they were being filmed. They also knew they were being archived and they knew that they live in this giant database online. But I don't think they realized that one day a filmmaker <laughs> would do some research and, uh, and pull those images up and use them in, in context to tell a story. So, yeah, I mean, those images were crucial to obviously to the, the narrative, to the, the, the um, story of these antagonists in the Senate who were trying to block this law that Phil was fighting for. But also it was this video that spurred me to make the film. You know, this is the video I was describing in the beginning where he has this fight with a senator and, you know, Phil, who I remember as this kid who you know, wasn't particularly eloquent and didn't have any clear convictions was sharp and convincing and feisty and bold. And, um, and, and I clear eyed and I thought, you know, this was the exact scene that is in the film that, that birthed the film itself. So it's interesting footage.
1: <laughs> it really is. Like they just, they just kind of came across, you're exactly right that he came across great. And I was in, I was always impressed by how his communication skills are excellent and they just came across. And that's interesting to know that that wasn't what he was like when he was younger and probably developed as a result of this passion for this animal. Mm-hmm. Of course, the other piece, which you also mentioned before, of what made this so depressing and loss after loss and the difficulties (laughs) of activism was the lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Marineland seems to have a reputation of being particularly litigious. And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about how lawsuits have been used to try to just to intimidate people, particularly Phil, but I'm sure others as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, the very first lawsuit that was launched after um, Phil made his allegations and and other employees actually um, was against Phil's girlfriend. So she, who, her name is Christine, she's in the film briefly, because her journey with the lawsuit has been different than Phil's, but she was a trainer at Marineland for almost the same amount of time, and she also was a whistleblower and made allegations of her own. And within a few months of her doing that, they sued her, and then two months later, they sued Phil, and then they sued other activists, and then they went on to the media, And there were a string of them between 2012 and 2015-16. They also eventually sued, if you can believe it, the organization who was charged with enforcing animal welfare. So if you can imagine the very people who were supposed to be monitoring the health and, and making sure that animals are safe in the province of Ontario, those people were sued by Marineland. And this was all in the context of these allegations that were coming out and the investigations that were done. So, you know, I can't speak for their motivations, you know i'm I'm not them. Um, but certainly it appears that these lawsuits were inten- were intended to make people think twice about
1: speaking out. Yeah, they would make anybody think twice. Well, as you mentioned, they've they made you think twice. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Absolutely. you, you yeah. went ahead, but I'm sure it was scary. Uh, so, did you do you feel that you know one of one of the bottom lines of this movie is injustice?
2: Absolutely. You know what? I love that you use that word. I was just thinking it as you were talking, and I hope that it's a layer that people feel because I mean, there's there's injustice against animals. There is also injustice injustice against people, and I think that the the justice system everywhere in the world, uh, but particularly in North America, is not set up to protect people with few resources or people who are marginalized in any way. And this is one of those situations. You know, you have a corporation with deep pockets who's able to launch lawsuits and continue them without ever providing evidence for their charges. And You know, unfortunately for Marineland, when they sued Phil, they sued the wrong guy because he has had um, the kind of resilience and creativity around fundraising and around being able to defend himself that they were not expecting. And I think that now they're in a very different position than they were in in 2012. I think they are, and I hope, rethinking this strategy of Coming at people in this way because they, uh, I hope, have learned from this experience with Phil that it doesn't always work out in their favor. But uh, it is a, a film that really strikes at the heart of what can happen when you speak out and the cost that that it takes, and and uh, but also the the necessity for it too.
1: You know. Yeah. No. I it it struck me intensely watching this movie and I can it's one of the things I love that this is one of those movies that is about animals and it's about activism but it's also about kind of universal themes that will bring in people perhaps to watch it who who might not otherwise sit down and watch a movie about animals or about activism and yeah that is that was definitely a deep underlying theme for me because it was so obvious that that this guy, was just taking a lot of risks for this and, and there was, he was a, he seemed like a very emotional guy mm-hmm. and um just went with that and not that many people can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the scenes that, uh, you know, I, I warned you we were going to talk about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> That's going to affect, I think the listeners of this podcast more than, more than almost any other scene is, is the discussion of veganism, mm-hmm. which you filmed, fascinatingly, while he was grilling, well, Phil, the hero of the movie, was grilling, uh, what, what was it, 10 enormous steaks? <laughs> steaks, yeah. <laughs> which was, um, and he, he actually, like, it, it's not like he just ignored the question. He called it the topic that he hated the most mm-hmm. and that eating st- he, it, the classic line, uh, I'm a hypocrite, but I'm comfortable in that. Like it's the only, seems like the only one of the few <laughs> areas in the world where people are completely comfortable saying, yeah, I know I'm a hypocrite, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about that, that scene and, and why you included it. Mm. Well, it was
2: probably the um, most hotly debated scene in the edit suite. You know, should we put it in? Should we not? Where does it go? At what point do we feel that people are invested enough in Phil that when they see this, they won't just completely be repulsed and turn away and not be with him anymore because you know as a filmmaker you have this this hero type character who is flawed I mean and he's flawed from the beginning you kind of get it Um, that he's not a saint he's not a perfect person by any means and he has a temper and he gets angry and he's complicated and he's you know difficult and all those things but ultimately you are with him and his love for smooshy and then all of a sudden you know this scene pops up and I filmed it really from a, a place of deep intuition because you know you've got to put yourself in 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 the region, right? So we're in small town Niagara. It's quite close to the American border. Again, not a lot of people are um, college educated. The jobs that were there, the industry that was there, has dried up. So there's a lot of unemployment. The jobs that are available are are often minimum wage and 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 not um, secure. And so the kind of um, high level thinking about our relationship with animals, uh, nutrition and morality and climate change on the planet, I'm not saying is absent by any means, because there are a lot of wonderful, intelligent, sensitive people there and, and many, many activists as well, vegan activists. But as a whole, I would say the mainstream is in a different era. And my brother is in that scene. So my brother is the guy sitting um, on the chair who says to him, who says to Phil, um, you know, would you become uh, vegan for ten thousand more followers? And you know, it's it's a bit of a joke because Phil, of course, is a you know social media hound, really. I mean, he spends most of his days on social media, and um, and it's it's its place of expression. And he kind of ignores the question, and uh, and then him and I start talking about veganism, and. I I deliberately did this because he is a steak eater, uh, on a regular basis. It's his favorite meat. And so he, and I had long been talking to him off camera about this tension that he has with uh, some members of the vegan community, but also within himself. And one of the reasons I included the, well, there are two main reasons. One is that I think people who follow him on social media don't realize how torn he actually is about this. Uh, there is a part of him that says, yes, I'm a hypocrite and I'm okay with that. And then there's another part of him that feels uncomfortable with it. And he goes back and forth. And I think his persona online doesn't make that clear. And so I wanted to give a bit of a taste of that to, to so that people could feel his Discomfort, And you can kind of feel it in his body language a little bit. And then, of course, there's a vegan activist who comes in and makes a comment and says, listen, I was excited when Phil came out uh, against Marineland, but he hasn't evolved in the way I'd like him to evolve yet. And I'm disappointed about that, you know? And so... I wanted to confront that both to be truthful to the character and authentic and give people an inside view into what he's really going through and inside his mind about this issue, but also because I wanted the film to speak to the mainstream in a lot of ways. And so I actually got an email from a hunter who saw that film, who was a local guy, who obviously ate meat and even killed animals in order to do that, and said to me that after seeing Phil's story, seeing him as a non-vegan, it actually changed his opinion of animal rights activists as a whole and of the whole issue. And he said, you know, I felt like Phil was a guy like me. And it made, it has made me rethink all of those protests against Marine Land, which I used to mock. Uh, it has made me rethink captivity, and it's even making me rethink meat. And I think I would never have been able to have that kind of effect if I didn't have that scene in the film, if I hadn't confronted that, if I wasn't honest about who Phil really is as an activist. So the translation of this issue to a mainstream audience or let's say a non-activist audience was important to me so that the reach was broader, but also so that the conversation could, could open up.
1: I totally agree. I think it, I mean, for me, it was one of the most important scenes in the movie. And though it wasn't exactly the scene that, that, that made me love him more. No, of course not. Yeah, you, I I do feel like for anybody who was willing to pay attention, and a lot of people would just see that and say that leaves me off the hook. He's he loves animals. He's a great animal activist and he eats meat so that's okay with me. But I think if you're watching closer, you do see. I mean that you do see that conflict within him. Mm-hmm. And if you're really paying attention, yeah, he says as you pointed out I'm a hypocrite but I'm comfortable in that. But he's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, no. Or else he wouldn't keep talking about it or, or saying it's the topic that he hates the most. That's he's right. not comfortable in it. Um so yeah, that that tension does come through. As I say, not everybody's going to pick up on it, but you know, if you if you could do that, you would be <laughs> a miracle worker. Exactly. If you could come up with a scene that would make everybody say, "Oh, yeah, that this is really hypocritical and wrong." <laughs> yeah, know? no, no,
2: definitely. And I think I think a lot of people who see it, I hope feel hypocritical themselves perhaps you know like there are really a lot of anti-captivity not necessarily activists but people who've fallen on that side of the moral question who still eat meat i think that is there's a, a large you know swath of the population that that's like that and but i think like with any social change it has it has to happen in waves in steps, right? And, you know, the paradigm doesn't shift overnight. And so as we transform, hopefully, towards a more humane and better world, it it, it happens slowly, as we know, but also we have to, you know, win people over to that sense of, of, of morality, um, you know, bit by bit. And, and everyone has their own rhythm and comfort level. And so, I think that when people see that, you know, I've had people also tell me that they shifted in their seats, like meat eaters who actually shifted in their seats because the scene actually opens, um, as, as you said, with these, you know, several large steaks. they're also raw, right? So you, you know, you're looking at it and it doesn't last long. I mean, I don't linger on this. That wasn't the intent, but the visual is quite striking after you've been hearing all about animal suffering and you've been hearing about, you know, this love for smooshy and all of a sudden you see a dead animal on, on a grill. And I think even meat eaters shift a little bit in that scene and they, they, they start to ask themselves a few questions. You know, if they're, if they're thinking people, they're like, Ooh, how do, what, how do I feel about this? You know? And, I had a lot of discussions um, with my editor around, you know, do we elaborate do we open this up and create a you know a ten minute uh, scene and segment about veganism and we you know we had versions of it where it was a lot longer. but you know, there were so many threads in this film to weave together that, I didn't want it to overshadow the discussion, but I felt I wanted to create enough of a punch to, to make people think about it. So
1: I, ho- I hope it gets across. <laughs> I I think you succeeded. I mean, of course I'm coming at it from a different point of view than the people you want to reach, but I, I thought it was just enough mm. w- without, you know, bec- inevitably becoming didactic in some way. And mm. so I, yeah, I thought you played it beautifully. In fact, there's a, not just about veganism but just about animals in general it seems like they're a particularly difficult topic to to film about because nobody wants to see cruelty to animals and no. it's very easy to just not watch it I mean that's the easiest way to avoid seeing cruelty to animals and you don't want that how did I felt you you struck a good balance between getting enough in there about what happens to the animals but not overwhelming people with that. How do you see the the challenge of of striking that balance?
2: Well, for me, it was um, it was uh, relatively easy because I knew from the beginning that I was also telling a human story, a, a human fable, really, and in some ways a cautionary tale around human hubris. Right. I mean, we have a marine land on one side that is never and it's just not giving up and, you know, trying to evolve, but doing it awkwardly and not particularly being successful and holding on to an old narrative and an old worldview for too long and therefore getting into conflict with people who are evolving in a different way and then you've got Phil who's hanging on to his own thing and has become trapped in his own story and ha- has let his life become completely obsessed not just by activism but by this quest for smooshy and his identity as a whistleblower and so I knew that there were these important human elements that are in direct relation to animals you know it's like the way I I saw the film was here you have these animals in these cages in the conditions that they're in. And then you have all these kind of crazy humans on the outside circling them and having these public fights. And, and it's like the animals are caught in the middle, right? Like the, the, the animals are the ones that don't have the same voice. And thankfully for people like Phil and, and others, they, they are starting to, but I wanted to have them in the film as you know, without exploiting their suffering, I was very conscious of that. But have them in the film as as the victims in this crazy world around them. You know, they didn't ask for uh, all of these really awful things that we humans have done to the planet, et cetera, et cetera. So I knew that if I if I concentrated too much on the animal suffering and really, you know, extended that too much and went too far, then I would lose precious. Time and and narrative attention to these other uh, themes that I thought could actually help and support the case for for animals and and for the discussion as a whole. So, so I knew I had to leave rim in the film for all that. But um, yeah,
1: well, that's really well said. And 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 I feel like you really succeeded in that. It's like the the movie is about all these people circling these animals. But you always remember that the animals are in the center, mm-hmm. even though the movie is about all these people who are circling them. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a, that was a really successful and much you know pe- like I said, people are just going to talk about it if all oh, you're showing is cruelty to animals. They're just going to turn it off. I mean, <laughs> it's so easy to avoid it. So here, you really got caught up in the story of these complex and imperfect people, which is you know what humans like to like to think about we like to think about ourselves (laughs) right (laughs) that's a good point (laughs) scary but but true (laughs) yeah i'm pretty sure that's true (laughs) yeah oh yeah (laughs) so tell tell us about i I don't even understand what move i'm not sure you can answer completely but what happens to movies nowadays when people <laughs> don't go to movies anymore? How, how do you do distribution? What have you done so far? What will you be doing in the future? And, and how has the movie been received?
2: Well, first, uh, you know, there's been, I have to say, a um, certain amount of grief on my part around the timing of this release. Um, I can imagine. Yeah, and, and it it was a difficult decision. You know, I had my journey with it was that I had gotten accepted into Hot Docs, which is one of the biggest um, documentary festivals in the world now. I think it's in the top three or four, which is based in Toronto, and which was extremely exciting. And I was still finishing the film when the pandemic hit. And they gave us an option of whether to pull out of the festival and wait or, you know, proceed. And that was. A turning point, obviously, um, you know, a, a real crossroad. But because of the urgency of the story, I mean, the, the particulars around Phil and Smooshi, and the tension that's uh, inherent in the, in the story, and also the fact that I've been working on it for some time, and it just felt like the right moment. So I, d- I decided to go ahead and air it at Hot Docs. It did so well there that it won the top audience award, which is
1: oh, I didn't even know that. That's yeah, wonderful. It's
2: awesome. It's like the yeah, it's the top honor at the festival. Um, so, it, but, and I was shocked, obviously, that that the film had been received like that because as a filmmaker nowadays, you're disassociated completely from your audience. I mean, you know, I am not uh, online a ton. I mean, I'm present online, but I, I have a life outside of that, uh, that I, that I nurture. And so I don't, I don't spend a whole lot of time on social media. Um, and even when I do, it's wonderful, but it's never the same as sitting in an audience with a thousand people and feeling their reactions, mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad. I mean, like I love challenging questions or if people thought I didn't succeed in something, that's all, that's all great. I mean, as a filmmaker, that's our food, that's our reward. That's why we work so hard is to have that engagement. And so I have felt kind of disassociated from it. And yet getting that award was was massive. I started to get calls from agents and all kinds of people who were really interested in my career and where I was going. Um, and then it got accepted into um, dozens of festivals around the world. So the film has been traveling. I haven't, um, but the film has been traveling <laughs> And it's been opening uh, online in, in various places, so it aired on CBC, it will have a life um, uh, in the US on VOD, and so uh, that's really, I mean, that's that's what it has been. You know, we did a couple of theatrical screenings in Ontario for uh, very small audiences, obviously, because of the... Um, the, uh, you know, uh, restrictions around distance and that kind of thing. And everyone was wearing a mask and sitting two meters apart, you know, every third seat could be taken. And so I did get a little bit of that. And there were a few Q&As that really nourished my soul and had, you know, wonderful interactions with people, very intimate interactions because the audiences were so small, but but it's it's been very different and there's been some grief, but also um, there are also some plus sides in the sense that people are more focused on things online now. People are watching things uh, on their laptops. And so the accessibility of the film potentially is, is better, you know, because it will have a a release on VOD. Um, it, you know, it has traveled to various online festivals, you know, Doc New York, uh, for one that I'm really proud of, um, of having gotten into. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's being well-received, but, uh, I I really wish
1: I could see it with people. (laughs) Yeah. I can imagine after (laughs) all of that, but I totally agree. You had to take this moment. I mean, fictional movies can wait, but, Mm. A yeah. lot of documentaries, they're, they're a moment in time, and you yeah. don't want to miss that. So I think it was clearly the right decision. Uh, explain in more detail how people can, can see it. They just what, Google uh, what platform or go yes. to your
2: website? Yeah, so or, it is available on um, iTunes and uh, various other VOD uh, platforms. And it was at um, Doc New York in November. And uh, but the the best way for people to see it right now is on iTunes and any other uh, VOD platforms that they might
1: have. That's great. I don't know what VOD means. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Video video on demand.
2: Yeah. Oh, okay. So basically, okay. Um, Netflix is a VOD. Um, they call it an SVOD. But um, iTunes is transactional, meaning you um, pay a fee to rent it, essentially. So, right.
1: Yeah. So that would be the most the broadest. Uh, place that uh most people would be able to access it at exactly the everybody in the
2: uh u.s and in canada actually will be able to access it um on oh, itunes that's great
1: that's great do you have uh do you have hopes for amazon or netflix should i not ask that or uh i do i do yeah there are discussions so going on process.
2: yeah there are discussions going on and i haven't gotten an update on that but i'm hoping that that will have a good outcome
1: excellent well, you can tell them that our hen house loved this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <So. laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for uh, for making this movie, Natalie. And thanks so much for joining us today. It's been really lovely to talk about it.
0: Oh, thank you very much, Marianne. It's uh, It's been a profound pleasure. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Brand new from Hachette in December 2020. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor and your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way. And well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise. To dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head, sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold, or go to jasmine.singer.com/fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R dot com slash fabulous. The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan.
1: Anxiety's rising. Did you like my musical interlude? So our first entry for today is from the Free Range Thoughts column by Rick Berman, the beloved executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom. That was being sarcastic if you're not familiar with him uh, on on MeetingPlace.com. And the entry for this particular week is looking ahead, the environmental echo chamber on meat. And he's upset. He's upset that uh, the Green New Deal exists. He's upset that the new administration is endorsing it and that climate change is at the top of the agenda. And he's upset that Sana Beg, chief of staff for the fake meat advocacy group, Good Food Institute, and that's a quote, joined the USDA agency review team. And what he's really upset, though, about is the Farm Animal Investment Risk and Return Initiative, And if you recall, we had Rosie Wardle from from FAIR on episode 369, if you want to know more about it. And it advises investors, and uh, it told them that meat taxes seem imminent, and that activist physician groups in the UK are now calling for a meat tax, not based specifically on the health implications of eating meat, but based on environmental grounds. And of course, I'm sure Rick thinks that the environment has nothing to do with your health. But uh, so this is pretty bad. He, He points out that even if Congress stays split and staves off radical legislation, the meat industry will continue to face increased brand attacks while activists look for an administration to take unilateral executive action. And any campaign that disparages a product begins to erode a brand. Activists play the long game. Each cycle of attack brings them closer to their goal of shifting public opinion. Well, I just love to read his opinion of us because it makes me feel so hopeful. He's clearly very scared of animal activists in this country. Then he, he he turns to Jonathan Lovern, who of course has also been on the podcast and on the Animal Law Podcast. And he's the Humane Society of the United States. It says here Chief Counsel, but I think he's the chief litigation counsel. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Well, it probably does to John, but but you know, for our purposes. And points out that John recently suggested that uh, President Biden, soon to be President Biden, should take unilateral actions to increase the amount of scrutiny and regulations levied against the meat industry in the name of environmental stewardship. This would include eliminating regulatory exemptions for CAFOs and counting agriculture emissions as pollutants. I bet you, well, there are some of you out there that didn't even know that there were exemptions for CAFOs from regulatory uh, regimes governing uh, the environment. Uh, Yeah, they don't have to obey them. God forbid they should have to obey the same rules that everybody else has to obey. You know, agriculture emissions are not considered pollutants. (laughs) Okay, really not a good idea. So yeah, go John. But you know, Rick is upset about all of this, and it's also happening on the state level. Earlier this month, animal extremist group Direct Action Everywhere launched a campaign seeking a moratorium on the expansion and or development of CAFOs in California. Yes, they did indeed, and uh, God, God be with them. So he's upset. He he's upset that uh, even regular purchase of of meat may seek to greenwash their products, like Burger King. And they're disastrous, less gassy cow ad, but, you know, maybe they'll do even better by uh, emphasizing the environmental friendliness of the Impossible Burger. I don't know. That's my idea. Burger King, you listening? So he's pretty wigged out about this, and uh, he he goes on to talk about how how actually this is all nonsense. And, you know, he drags out Dr. Frank Mitleiner, their favorite scientist, their only scientist as far as I can tell who says, you know, meat is really fabulous vis-a-vis the environment, and also points out that the last five years have seen the introduction of drugs and feed supplements that decrease the amount of cattle emissions. That sounds great, doesn't it? So yeah, he's pretty wigged out. Yay, I love that. I love it when they're upset. All right, this one just makes me nuts. USDA to extend school meal flexibilities, this is from feedstuffs.com, which is, of course, an industry site. F- listen to that word flexibilities. And what they're talking about is rules that uh, the USDA has tried to change regarding flexibility for flavored and low-fat milk, whole grain, and sodium requirements. And basically, this isn't about flexibility. They were trying to impose some rules about what you can't do when it comes to giving kids milk and whole grains and sodium. Like It's not flexibilities. It's like they got rid of the rules that were were trying to improve the situation. So now they're they're allowing flexibility by allowing flavored low-fat milk in the child nutrition programs, which they were trying to get rid of, allowing half of the weekly grains offered through the school meal programs to be whole grain rich, which means that they only have to be half whole grain. That's what that means. I know it's hard to believe, but that's what that means. They have to be half enriched and half actually whole grain. And then sodium, they're just getting rid of the improvements in, that were scheduled for gradual sodium reduction and retaining sodium target one. But the one that really, you know, wakes us out in, in our particular field of endeavor, though the others are important, are the, is, is the milk thing. According to this, the International Dairy Foods Association welcomed the proposed rule. Well, I'm sure they did and talked about how American children and adolescents over four years old are not consuming enough dairy to meet federal dietary recommendations. The amount of dairy that they should be required to consume should be zero, but it's not. And the varieties of milk that can be offered to kids in school in recent years have been reduced. And they haven't been allowing them to have these really dreadful uh, variations on milk, trying to get kids to drink it. Um, They got rid of whole milk then they got rid of 2% milk so they're only allowing 1% milk and they then they got rid of 1% flavored milk which kids prefer compared to non-fat flavored milk well of course they do because milk is gross i never liked milk i still obviously i know some people like it i don't understand it it's disgusting and it goes sour and it's like just gross but For the kids like me, and there were many of them, I'm sure, who really find milk disgusting, now they can put chocolate in it. So that makes everything better, doesn't it? Putting chocolate in it. As a result, uh, this guy says, who's from the International Dairy Foods Association, revealing his hand, I might add, we're losing a generation of milk drinkers. That's what they're really worried about. Then he goes on talking about how this is healthier for children, which is nonsense. But that's what they really care about. They're losing customers. All right, finally, lawsuit. this is from meatandpoultry.com. Lawsuit claims distal turkey attributes are all talk. I love this because it really shows what these people do. I mean, it's a lawsuit, so we don't know that it's true, but I really, really doubt that they would be this. They didn't have a hell of a lot of evidence. Apparently, the Distal turkey is apparently a fancy pants uh, turkey operation, or pretends to be. Distal turkey ranch. These, these turkeys grow on a ranch. The company's website states the turkeys it sells come in organic, all-natural heirloom and pasture-raised varieties. And each, each of these breeds has its own unique qualities, but they're all raised according to our strict standards, the website says. They're raised in a wholesome, nourishing environment with access to fresh water and clean air, rolling off the Sierra Nevada foothills. Well, geez, I'd like to spend some time at the, at the turkey ranch. They're fed an all-vegetarian feed blend. Sounds great. Without fillers, growth stimulants, or antibiotics ever. And they're raised damn tasty. Well, I wouldn't want to be raised damn tasty, but the rest of it sounds pretty good. Of course, that's not where the, most of their birds actually come from. They ha- apparently have this, like, uh, this front that is this ranch in the Sierra Nevada foothills. But according to this lawsuit, The main source of Distel's turkey is from off-site facilities with poultry barns housing as many as 17,000 birds each. That sounds pretty standard, doesn't it? In addition, other turkey parts are purchased from commercial suppliers and then repackaged as Distel products. The the company's turkeys are shipped to the Sonora location only for slaughtering and processing. And some products are not even sent there. They don't even get a minute on the ranch. And apparently they can charge as much as 9 dollars and 99 cents per pound. Other commercially raised birds sell for as little as 59 cents per pound. This is disgusting. Anyway, let's hope, let's hope this lawsuit has legs and gets these people in trouble because the only way they can, they can sell their disgusting products is to lie about them. I mean, we see it over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, they know, They know they can't tell the truth and they know from lawsuits like this that, you know, they've got to know that their days are numbered, at least for lying. Unless they can talk people into eating completely, hideously, cruelly raised factory farm products. Yeah, it's over for them. Anyway, that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 total for the year end. That's 20,000 from our barnyard benefactors $20,000 20000 from an anonymous donor, and 20000 collectively from you. If you're not already part of the Flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private Flock Facebook group, and an invitation to our weekly Friday Flock Zoom meetings for a fun and engaging conversation with me and Marianne and others in the Flock, plus special guests. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I'll send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our henhouse and if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit OurHenHouse.org donate. That's OurHenHouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at OurHenHouse across the board. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our House as your favorite charity. And we do get those uh, disbursements and they help a lot. So thank you for those of you who do. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to the wonderful Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. Thanks to our graphic designer, Lori Johnston from Two Trick Pony. We will be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.